Mark Cuban. Going against the norm and, and looking for people who had great ideas is, is really what I look for as opposed to individuals mentoring me. David Stern. Thank you. Those are very kind and generous words. I greatly appreciate them, and thanks for having me on. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. Chris Everett. It was very interesting. You asked great questions, so thank you very much, Brian. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Maria Taylor. Oh, thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. And your preparation shows you. Tim Howard. Well, I appreciate you saying I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Just to name a few. Let's Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio. Hope you're doing well and staying safe. Another great guest lined up for you today. Someone you may not have heard of before, but someone who sure has had an important job and has had about as much success as you can have. Chip Schaefer, Chicago Bulls Director of Performance Health He's only won 11 NBA championships, six with the Bulls, five with the Lakers. He was part of the Bulls run in the 1990s with Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson. Then he went with Phil Jackson to the Lakers, won five more rings there with Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, Phil Jackson. Boy, does he have some stories. He also can tell us what he's seen over the last 30 years we, you know, it used to be, it was a badge of honor to play 82 games. Now there's load management. Things have changed greatly in the NBA with training techniques. Really interesting conversation with Chip Schaefer. He and I got to know each other when I was one of the voices of Loyola Marymount University for that amazing men's basketball team that led the nation in scoring. Hank Gathers, Bo Kimball, Paul Westhead. You may remember I had Coach Westhead on a few weeks ago. Well, Chip Schaefer and I got to know each other when he was the trainer of that Loyola Marymount team before he went to the Bulls and then to the Lakers. Also coming up on our show today, Ken Cohn, who is the chief marketing officer of CBDMD. They're the official CBD partner of Sports Business Radio, the only American CBD company that's listed on the New York Stock Exchange THC free. They work with athletes like Bubba Watson and Lolo Jones. Really a great product, a variety of products for humans and pets. We'll talk to Ken Cohn coming up on this week's edition of Sports Business Radio. Griggs, how was your father's day? It was wonderful. You know, I uh, was just talking with my wife before we came on and uh, we were both excited about having golf on. So we watched some golf yesterday and I just love having at least there's no crowds there at the golf, but it's nice to have some live sports and some uh, new fresh stuff on TV. So had a good weekend. Yeah, we're still getting lots of great reviews from the Ken Griffey Jr. interview from last week. He spoke a lot about his father and obviously played with his father. Uh, I think a lot of people learned about Ken Griffey Jr., as a father to his three kids through our interview. So uh, if you hadn't had a chance to listen to the Ken Griffey Jr. interview right here on Sports Business Radio, go to iTunes or Spotify and find that. Uh, Griggs, uh, anything on the grill for Father's Day? We actually did not grill. We What did we do? I don't even remember what we ate. Oh, we uh, got some to-go from Cheesecake Factory. I don't know if you've been there, but it, it was tasty. Uh, we really just kind of hung out at home. Uh, we did grill, so I threw some burgers on the grill, played a little cornhole in the backyard. We're here in Oregon, the weather getting a little bit better, so that's nice. Uh, did some berry picking with my daughter. We have great berries here in the Oregon area, so, uh, she made a pie, which is great. But Griggs, uh, we'll do a big show next week on kind of 
the update on COVID and the state of sports. Keith Foreman will join me. We've done a couple of those. It's been a while since we did our last one. But one of the things that is really looking at iffy at this point is will there be a Major League Baseball season as of today? Not looking great. Major League Baseball's Players Union rejected a 60-game proposal for Major League Baseball. Now it's really up to Rob Manford. I mean, they've gone back and forth with proposals. Nothing has gotten done. We're coming up on early July. Do you think they're going to have baseball at this point? Yeah, it just doesn't look good. I mean, I've never seen something go back and forth so many times, get voted down so many times, and it's it's kind of frustrating for, I know, I can't imagine being the players and the and the owners and stuff, but man, as a fan, it's like, just get the season going. We're right here in summer. This is when you're just loving baseball, and we're not seeing it, so I'm kind of bummed. Yeah, it's disappointing, because you would think with the backdrop of the world today and everything that's going on, they would be able to resolve their differences, but as I've always said, the foundation of any relationship is trust, and there just doesn't seem to be a trust between the players' union and the owners and Commissioner Rob Manfred. So, you know, I don't know that anything's going to get done. And then, you know, the other thing this could be really interesting that we'll talk about next week is you see these football teams like Clemson and LSU, and, you know, we see the outbreak in Florida where the NBA and Major League Soccer and the WNBA are headed to restart their seasons. I don't know. I mean, I, I've said several times on this show, because of COVID, seasons may start. Will we see seasons finished in the U.S. this year for team sports? Obviously, NASCAR and PGA Golf and U.S. Open is going to play tennis. But I don't know. I, I just think when you bring lots of athletes together in one small space, like a locker room, and especially in college football where they're living together as well, it doesn't seem like a recipe for uh Good things ahead. Yeah, I was listening to an interview this morning with Christine Sinclair of the women's uh, team, and they're starting up their season, one of the first leagues to get going. And she said it's the same thing. It's like you're in this bubble, but if one person or one athlete or coach gets it, then what do you do? You got to shut everything down, or you know, how do you move from that? So it's it's just that fine line of uh, of, of worry, you know, being worried about it. Yeah. Well, we'll update you on everything in sports and give you our our thoughts on where things may be headed on our show next week. But coming up next, Chip Schaefer, the Chicago Bulls Director of Performance Health. He's won 11 NBA championships with the Bulls and the Lakers. You're going to enjoy this conversation. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. If you're working from home now like I am, you still need to look professional. Many of us are doing Zoom conferences or FaceTime calls with business associates. That's why I turn to my Mizzen and Main dress shirts. I need to look good from the waist up, but I also want to be comfortable. Mizzen and Main is like athletic wear disguised as a dress shirt, making them great for comfort while working from home. It's a shirt that has worked for thousands of customers, including hundreds of professional athletes like J.J. Watt and Phil Mickelson. Head on over to MizzenandMain.com and use promo code SBR to get $10 off your dress shirt. That's MizzenandMain.com code SBR. Guess what? Mizzen and Maine also make super comfortable wrinkle-free pants and shorts, so you can check those out as well. Head on over to MizzenandMaine.com. Use promo code SBR to get $10 off your next purchase. That's MizzenandMaine.com, code SBR. My guest is Chip Schaefer. He is the Chicago Bulls Director of Performance Health. He has 11 championship rings 
was part of the Phil Jackson-led dynasties with the Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles Lakers. Six rings with the Bulls, five rings with the Lakers. Chip and I met and became friends when Chip was the trainer for that special Loyola Marymount University team with Paul Westhead, Bo Kimball, and Hank Gathers. Chip, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. I've wanted to do this for a while. How are you? I'm great, Brian. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, how lucky am I in the last month I get to talk to Coach Westhead and, and now get to take a trip down memory lane with you. So uh, I'm very excited about this conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, bear with me. as It's been enough years that uh, I'm going to have to, <laughs> to shake my head a little bit a few times with the tab website <laughs> to uh, provide too much detail. But, um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's a pleasure to talk about those, those memories. So what an amazing career you've had. Let's start – you know, kind of at the beginning, uh, your path to becoming a trainer and, and working in performance health. You went to University of Utah for undergraduate. Walk us through kind of how you wanted to become a trainer. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. So I grew up in the Chicago area, um, you know, through the 60s and 70s. And during the time that I was in high school, just prior to uh, starting college, uh, there, there was actually... Um, uh, a television show that maybe some of your older uh, older listeners may remember, but it was called The White Shadow. I love that show. About a uh, an ex Chicago Bull. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure I'm sure you were a fan of the show too. Um, and if you remember, it was it was about ironically an ex Chicago Bull that that somehow found himself uh, retired from from professional basketball and living in Los Angeles was, was the setting. And he was uh, working as a high school basketball coach and teacher and sort of teaching life lessons to those uh, inner city kids. And that was sort of a path that I, that I wanted to follow. My sister, uh, one of my sisters had, had uh, been a, at that time, a physical education major. They've, they've, they've changed. Uh, now it's exercise science and kinesiology and movement science. And a lot of the universities have, have changed. But back in, in my day and in our day, it was, it was physical education. Uh, and that was a goal of mine. And so I, um, you know, embarked on my, uh, my college years with that goal in mind. And one of the, the, the courses was actually an introductory course in, in athletic training, just, you know, learning basic injury evaluation and, you know, learn on tape and ankle, what have you. And so, um, it was taking that course and spending some time in the training room at the University of Utah under a, a person I still hold in high, highest regard, Bill Bean, who was my mentor for many years as a head athletic trainer. Um, at Utah. Prior to that, he'd actually worked for a bit in the old ABA for the Utah Stars. And so he had, you know, tales to tell of professional basketball and stuff. And um, I think a big part of it was, that, at least at that time in my life, I, I found the sort of more nurturing relationship that you'd establish with athletes a little more appealing as opposed to a sort of more authoritarian figure of, of, uh, of being a coach. And so I kind of pivoted, uh, you know, midway through through college more toward that. And, uh, so finished college and then uh, right out of actually did a year of grad school. And then in 1984, um, uh, the U S ski team, which is based in park city had an opening after the Sarajevo Olympics for an athletic trainer. And I applied for that position, got that, uh, did that for a couple of years, uh, got married, started a family, relocated to Southern California, um, worked for a year at the Curl and Job clinic, uh, who took care of all the pro, pro teams in the LA area, basically, and also one college, which was Loyola Marymount University. And in 1987, there was an opening there, um, for a head athletic trainer. And I applied for it and got that and did that for three years during that three years. Uh, also what, one of the advantages of, of, of working at a university is you get to uh, maybe take advantage of some of the academic aspects of it too in your, in your spare time. And so I earned an MA in counseling while I was the head trainer there. I stayed on campus sometimes late as 10 o'clock at night. 
Uh, but then in 1990, uh, the head of trainer position with the Chicago Bulls opened. Uh, was got, got that job, was uh, the head trainer for the Bulls from 90 to 98. Uh, was actually got out of the uh, industry for uh, a little under a year before uh, my, my dear friend uh, and, and former boss, Phil Jackson, found himself back in Southern California where I'd relocated with the Lakers and, and uh, got back on board with them in a kind of a newly defined role, which we can go into a little bit if, if you'd like. Uh, worked for the Lakers for, for 12 years. Uh, was out of the league again for, took a, a college position at UC Santa Barbara for a little over a year, got back in Sacramento Kings for, for three years. And then, uh, in 2016, uh, a call came from the Bulls, um, to, to come back and, and everything kind of came full circle and I'm back in, been back in Chicago since 2016. And you're from Chicago. So being in Chicago right. is, is home to you. Uh, it, it is. And it was, it was, it's, it's been great to be back. Now it was it was particularly great. Uh, both my parents are, have 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 passed, but when I came back in 1990, uh, they were both uh, alive and doing well. And I, you know, a lot of my closest friends were had you know had, had uh, graduated from college and established themselves in the Chicago area. So that was really kind of a a golden period for for me. You know, um, with the young family to come back and be with my family and friends and enjoy. Uh, some of the, the, you know, the, the spoils of, of, of the team's success, uh, and share those with, with, you know, my closest friends and my family through the 90s. So that was a lot of fun. All right. So you gave the quick overview of your yeah. career. Obviously, I want to dig in at, at certain milestones. Let's go sure. back to LMU, Loyola Marymount, where we met. I was one of the radio voices. Again, you were the, the head trainer. Mm-hmm. People remember that team is a high scoring team. And, you know, the signature players were Hank Gathers, Bo Kimball, Jeff Fryer. And one of the things that Coach Westhead and I talked about a few weeks ago that I always remember as a trademark of that team is the exceptional conditioning that they were in. I mean, they were really better conditioned than any team I've ever been around, college or pro. What do you remember about that team? Yeah, that's that's a a great question. You know, I used to get – at that time – you know, the, the university did not have a, a strength and conditioning coach. And so I sort of was a de facto strength and conditioning coach for a, a lot of the teams. I, I didn't have, I, I couldn't have been spread thin enough to have, you know, function as a, the athletic trainer and been supervising people in the weight room. So what I would generally do for teams was design program. And then those coaches of those teams would have to have to do it. But with, with men's basketball, um, the conditioning aspect, uh, was something that I was, was very much integrated in with, with Paul, who I, who I just think the world of. I'm, I'm glad you had a chance to, to visit with him. Um, and, uh, so we sort of, uh, collaborated with just different ideas about, about things. Cause the year before I got there, um, through some of the conditioning things they tried led to some overuse injuries. I remember the, uh, the backstory, you know, a number of people had sort of, uh, Developed some chronic knee issues. I remember Jeff Fryer had bilateral uh, stress fractures in his shins that he had established the the year before. So as we embarked on that on that conditioning for that first year, I was there. We 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 talked quite a bit, and and over the three years I was there, the the, the program kind of got fine tuned, and we did some really interesting and innovative things. I used to get calls all the time from from. Um, strength conditioning coaches around the country, like, how, what, what's the secret? How did you get, because they, they were just literally indefatigable and there, there would be moments in, in games where you could, you know, Paul, Paul used to refer to it as, as cracking where you'd see the opponent crack and, and literally, and, and, you know, the, 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 the bent over grabbing their shorts, you know, just heaving, you know, breathlessly trying to catch their breath while our guys were still just hit, sort of hitting their stride. And so we did a lot of really interesting, innovative things. One of, one of the things um, 
that, that Paul was great about. I, I remember just a few years before hearing or we're reading a story about uh, Joan Benoit Samuelson, who had, if you remember, um, I think, I believe it was the first year that they ever introduced women's marathon in the Olympics, which is the LA Olympics in 84. And there was a great story that I'd read about, about her, um, having a knee injury just a month or less before, before the marathon, which, you know, could have been a disaster, obviously, and how she was able to continue to train through that. And they had just come up with some, some different, um, like, uh, aqua jogger, um, jogging vest where you could go in water deep enough so that you weren't impacting at all and, uh, and allow yourself to still do the, do the conditioning training without impacting and loading through your joints. So I, I kind of shared that story with Paul. Paul was, a, if you remember, was an avid runner himself back yes. at the time. He, 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 he was sort of a, uh, his mentor, Jack Ramsey, you know, they, these guys were all guys that were doing marathons and ultra marathons back in those days. And so Paul and I discussed it and, um, you know, it was a bit of a budget thing for at that, at that time, but we wound up getting like 15 of these aqua jogger vests and we would go into that beautiful outdoor pool there. I mean, what are the advantages of being in, in Los Angeles? And so I think we did, we targeted like two days a week where they could still condition, but kind of unload, um, a very popular term in 2020, sort of unload a little bit from some of the, the, the trauma and impact of their lower extremity. And so that was just one of the innovative things we did. But, but at its core, one of the, not a lot of innovation, particularly those teams just practice hard. I mean, if you walked into a typical, Basketball practice, it doesn't matter if it was high school, college, or professional, a large portion of basketball practices are typically conducted in the half court. Um, and they're very much tactical in orientation and going through, you know, running through, you know, your offensive sets and things like that. Hardly, you know, high exertion things. If you walked into to, to one of Paul's practices, it was two hours and guys were just nonstop and you would sort of, you know, build them up through, uh, the early fall, you know, through, through September when they came back for school in October. And then when, by the time that, uh, you know, the NCAA officially started, whatever that would have been at that time, mid, mid November, I, I think, um, they were already in peak physical condition and then they just practiced and played so hard all the time. Uh, they just had such a resiliency to the, to the work and, and tolerance of the workload. Um, they just were found themselves this phenomenal basketball shape. And I emphasize basketball shape because, you know, basketball is very unique. They weren't, you know, they weren't ready to go be marathon runners or whatever, but, but for the sport of basketball, with these high, high, um, effort, short in duration, but very little time to recover the type of activity that basketball is specific to, uh, they were just in peak, peak physical condition. So that's a, that's a great question. And I, I hope I answered it for you. So. No, you did. It's really yeah. insightful stuff. So for our listeners, 1989-90, that Loyola Marymount University basketball team averaged 122 points per game. And in an NCAA tournament game against Michigan, the defending national champs at that time, LMU scored 149 points. So it gives you some idea as to the prolific scoring that took place with that team. Thus, they needed to be in tremendous condition. Some really outstanding players on that team, specifically Bo Kimball and, and Hank Gathers. What are some of your recollections of of those guys? And are there any, you know, I asked Coach Wesley, any great stories that, that you can recall to share? Yeah, there, there, there's there's so many, you know, and I think one of the things, you know, obviously they were, they were extraordinarily uh, talented, gifted, gifted players. And there was, you know, there was a number of games that sort of, um, you know, come to mind. I remember, uh, we, we had a, uh, a game, you know, a national TV game in Baton Rouge against LSU and they had Shaquille O'Neal and Stanley Roberts, and Chris yep. Jackson, yep. uh, um, uh, Abdul Rahim 
Rauf, I think he changed his name, uh, and other, other really, you know, really talented players. And they had to find a way to schedule that game and they actually wedged it. It was during our conference season. And so I think we actually had like a, like kind of an, almost an NBA special. Like we played like three games and four nights, including a, you know, a trip all the way to Louisiana to play that game. And I, the, the score, the exact score, don't, don't quote me on it, but it wound up overtime or double overtime and it was you know 140 something to 140 something and you know later on you know when i obviously had an opportunity to work with shaquille with the lakers uh, he still recalled that game and he still recalled how tough uh hank was and you know obviously uh that following the tragedy of hank's death you know Bo, you know shooting the left-handed free throws and 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 you know that the um I think it was that first tournament game down in Long Beach. We had the two games there that you refer to the Michigan game. The game before that was against also a nationally ranked New Mexico State team that had several NBA players, Reggie Jackson, Randy Brown, who I worked with for for years, um, was very talented. And and one of the (laughs) – as only Paul would do, um, Bo had four fouls in the first half, and, and it was crazy. He wouldn't take him out of the game, he, literally daring the, the referees, I think, to foul him out. But uh, you, you were obviously down at the Long Beach Arena that, that weekend, and uh, you know, something really extraordinary happened that weekend. I, you had to have been part of it to, to remember it, but there was something in, in the air that you could just feel. But, but you talk about one of, the, one of my most lasting memories um, and I don't know if you were there. You, you, you probably would have been, but it was one of the years of a postseason banquet that we had. You know, where you give the awards out of that just you, you, you know your, your garden variety postseason banquet that every college team invariably has. You know, and at the time we had one one of the local LA sportscasters. I can't remember which one was supposed to MC the event. But due to a illness or, a, or another, you know, something had come up where they, they had to cancel at the last minute. And so there we were without an MC and, and Hank wound up MCing the event <laughs> and he had everybody in his, you know, he, he had the, the, you know, the Cosell imitation and the Ali imitation and he, uh, he, he, he could have played Vegas. It was just an unbelievable thing. And I think that, that, you know, all the basketball and all the tremendous athletic prowess aside, uh, you know, what I remember most about him is he just the glow of a personality that he had. He'd walk into a room and the room would start glowing practically, just bursting with personality. And I think it was on full display that night. I think anybody that was at that event that night would, would remember it as finally as I do. So I think that was, you asked about things that I, that I won't ever forget. That would be one. Um, just his charm and his personality was just something else. So no, totally agree. And I even remember that, you know, we traveled with you guys. So on the right. bus ride, when we landed at the airport and went from the airport to LSU for shoot around, yeah, Hank took over the loudspeaker and became like tour guide, and right. he had everyone in stitches, just right. laughing so hard that your stomach hurt for right. you know forty five minutes from the right. the airport to the arena. And he was the funny thing is a lot of people may not realize this. So Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball interned at KTLA the TV station in Los Angeles, they like broadcasting as much as they did basketball and Absolutely. they wanted to do that post career. So what personalities, but yeah, you're right. Hank lit up any room that he walked into and he was just yeah. a dominant personality. Yeah. No, no question. No. What about, uh, okay. So, you know, Bo Kimball and coach Westhead and I talked about this too. Bo had more talent than Hank, but Hank had heart like no one you've ever seen. I mean, 
remember how many shots he had blocked by Shaquille O'Neal in that LSU right. game. And a lot of guys would have said, put me on the bench or they would have right. stayed on the perimeter. And, and Hank just kept going back in there. And I think he finished with 48 points. Right. That, that, so that, there's a quality that he has, and I, and I assume at some point we'll talk about some other players I've worked with. But one of the, the common threads through all these these, these people, mm-hmm. and I, I think you're just either born with it or you're not. But it's it's just a fearlessness, and I think that's what you know. Even going back years later, when when in talking to Shaquille about that game at LSU, that he remembered most about Hank was, you know, he said, "God, I, he recalled that too." And I I must have blocked this guy shot five times, but he just kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. And, um, you're, you're right. A lot of people would have just sort of hung their head and said, I guess, you know, this isn't my day. And you make a, you make a point about how he was on the bus. Uh, there, there are a lot of guys that, you know, uh, just as big as Shaquille was Stanley Roberts. And here's Hank at whatever, six, seven, you know, 200 pounds dripping wet, um, with about 3% body fat going up against, uh, you know, probably closer to 600 pounds and seven, two, you know, dual seven footers. Um, and there he is the day before, just, you know, uh, hamming it up and having a good time. And, and, you know, some people, they're, they're just, they're just born that way, man. I don't, I don't know where it, where it comes from, but he had it and, uh, his, his work ethic. I mean, if you heard a, a ball bouncing at, in, in the gym at nine o'clock at night, uh, you, you could bet it was him. Um, just an indefatigable, uh, tireless worker and, and dedicated to being the best he could be. It was, it was really, really something else. He was, was a very, very special person. The last time I traveled before COVID was February 29th. I flew down to LA for the day and I went to the unveiling of the new Hank Gather statue at Loyola Marymount on the campus. And I saw Coach Westhead, many of the players, very disappointed that you weren't able to be there. I know that you had a game and, and obviously couldn't make it. But, you know, Chip, you and I have never really talked about this and we don't have to go too much into detail on it, but right after Hank died, it was a mess and there was a division between the family and the university. And, you know, that night was surreal for a lot of people. I'm sure more so for you than, than most anyone. But when I was there on February 29th, I was happy that Lucille gathers. Hank's mom was there. Uh, his son was there. His family was there. And it was like, okay, this chapter's closed now. Like there's finally unity here between the gathers family and Loyola Marymount University, and it should have been that way long ago. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I first became aware of that event, uh, you know, maybe the month or so before, and I got a call from one of the assistant coaches, Bruce Woods, who you remember and, and who I've kept in contact with. And, um, he, you know, he, he referenced it, and then he, then he said, and Lucille really would like you to come. Hmm. And I had I had uh, every intention of trying to make it. Uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, and tragically, for that your listeners will also understand, uh, that, that that very month, uh, the basketball world and the, the world in general suffered another tragedy with, with a, 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 the loss of somebody very dear to, to me, and that was Kobe Bryant. And literally, with, it was, I think it was about six days before Hank's event was was Kobe's event at Staples Center um, that, that I flew back and represented the Bulls and and, and was. You know, was there obviously as a, as a former member of the, of the Lakers staff. And so, uh, the, the, the irony of, of, of having to have made two cross country trips for two yeah. tragic circumstances in a less than seven day span, I, I, I probably would have, it wouldn't have even made sense for me to return back east for, for that. I would have, I would have gone there for Kobe's thing, which I think was on the 20th. 22nd or 23rd of February and just hung out in, in California and waited for, for Hank's thing. But I, but I was, uh, I was there in spirit and I, I saw some of the videos and things that people sent me. 
Um, and I could, you baby even sent me some, some stuff and, uh, I was, I was there in spirit and it was, it was great to see that. And I think, I think you're right. I think there was some closure from the family, but the family was always, you know, I, his brother Derek and I, um, had maintained a relationship for years after, in fact, he had returned to Philadelphia, uh, even through the nineties when I was at the Bulls and, and, uh, we would see each other and I would leave tickets for him to come to games and, and um, the, the family could never have been more gracious. So they were even, even originally, I think that there was, um, some other elements, uh, so some, some of the un, maybe uh, unseedier elements of, of, of human life that try to creep into some of those, uh, tragic occurrences as they often do in the aftermath of his, uh, untimely passing um and that was unfortunate that that happened but it's it's life uh unfortunately but uh the, the family I, I i couldn't i couldn't say enough about um uh their their grace and i'm, I'm glad that everybody is is doing well and, and uh and he'll, he'll he'll live forever in my in my mind and in my heart so yeah no i couldn't agree more i think about him and that whole team often yeah. all right so that's the lmu chapter you're at yeah. loyola marymount still and NBA Summer League before it was in Vegas, it was at Loyola Marymount and played right. in the gym. So next you go to the Bulls, but don't they come meet with you at NBA Summer League? Cause they're already on campus and, and Phil Jackson comes. Tell the story of how you wind up going to the Bulls. Well, yeah, that, that, that is again, life, life is funny how, how things work out. And sometimes it, it, it can throw a, you know, a little advantages here, a little disadvantages there. One of the great advantages I had was, um, I had, uh, you know, my, my, my good longtime friend, Gary V, the longtime trainer for the, for the Lakers. I can still remember, um, him coming into my office at, at Loyola early in that summer saying, Hey, I got some, some, some big news for you. You know, Mark File, who was a longtime trainer for the Bulls, had left the Bulls to take the same job up in Milwaukee, which made that job available. And, uh, and so as a Chicago native, not only a Chicago native, but actually a native of, of Deerfield, Illinois, which is actually the town that the, that the Bulls practice facility was in, um, I immediately, you know, submitted my name and my application for the, for the position. And you're absolutely right. The summer league at that time was held at Loyola Marymount for years. Uh, and the Bulls were sending a team out. And because I had applied for the job and I was already there sort of as the host athletic trainer for all the teams, uh, Jerry Krause, the general manager at that time said, Hey, here's a, here's a guy who's applied for the job. I've got all the qualifications. Why don't we just let him essentially audition for the job? He can take care of our players while, while they're there for that, you know, week 10 days. And so that's exactly what I did. Um, I suppose if I, uh, wasn't, wasn't very good, I, I may well have been exposed as such, but, uh, fortunately I was uh, able to, to handle the team for that time and got a chance to meet Jerry and, uh, had extensive conversations with Phil and that couple of the young players on the team at that time participated, uh, Stacey King and BJ Armstrong, Will Purdue. Um, and, and we got along right away and I think they probably gave me some positive reviews and I had a couple of great meetings with Phil and shortly thereafter, uh, that summer league ended that year, they'd offered me the job. And so I was able to, to move back, uh, to the Chicago area with my family and, and, and was able to, uh, enjoy eight years as a head athletic trainer for the Bulls during a, a pretty special time. So. That's an understatement during a pretty special, yeah. I mean, when you took yeah. that job, Chip, and, and, you know, you agree to go work for the Bulls and Phil Jackson, did you have any inkling like, oh, I'm going to get six rings in the next, what, eight years here. This is going to be one of the historically greatest teams of all time. Well, obviously nobody could have imagined what was going to unfold over that, over that next eight years. Um, but obviously they had not yet won a, 
a title, but they were on the cusp of it. I'd known that they had taken the Pistons to seven games uh, in the conference finals that year, and so they were on the cusp of breaking through. And obviously, uh, Michael was, you know, uh, as popular as any athlete on the planet at that time. Um, but you, you're going to kick out of this when I when I, when I tell people. Uh, in fact, I just made, made a reference to this um, to somebody uh, in the last day or two. Uh, as, as thrilling as it was to come back and, and meet some of those some of the young players at that time. Uh, having grown up in Chicago, um, one of my idols was was the voice, the longtime voice of the Bulls, uh, Jim Durham. And so when I when I think of all the people that I met, uh, just given what you do for a living, you know, you never know how how you reach people and how you know, obviously as a kid, you know, in the seventies and, and the, those voices coming through the radio and you're listening to your your favorite home team. Um, you know, you think of the of the great you know over the over the decades and different sports, what, what, what a radio being the radio voice of the team can mean to a, you know, to a kid growing up. So, and, and Jim only wound up um, lasting one more year with the team before, you know, through a contract uh, dispute. But I think NBA radio listeners will, will know in uh, Jim's name. He did for years, he and Jack Ramsey did the national broadcast and stuff. And so fortunately I was able to run into him several times a year for years. Not that he, we, we lost him a few years ago. He passed, um, but uh, but that, that was actually a great thrill for me too, to meet to meet the, the legendary voice uh, Jim Durham of the of the Bulls uh, along with the team and and uh, and yeah yeah it was it was it was just an unbelievable time and and the fact that we kind of ran through it you know the the, the first three peat and then things sort of faded a little bit and then to come back and you know uh, make the trade for Dennis and kind of uh, you know recast the, the the cast of the of the team and then uh, and then do it again was was quite a thrill so. That's just an amazing story, and I agree with you. I, you know, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, so I grew up listening to Al McCoy, the voice sure. of the Sun, Swisheroo nice for man. two, yep. Shazam, yep. you know. And and my whole life, I wanted to be Al McCoy when I was a, right. a kid, and I went to Al right. McCoy broadcasting camp. So, like, I, I totally get it when you meet your yeah. your radio hero, who's the voice yeah. of the team. Sometimes, because the players come and go, the voice right. is usually there for a long period of time. So. It could, it, could, it could be decades. It could be a, 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 a grandfather, a, a father, and a son could have all listened to you know, Harry Carey or something like that, or a Vin Scully that they go through multiple generations and that means so much to people. And uh, and they're, they're they're really in many ways sort of the unsung heroes. And they boy, those are the people that you, if they ever wrote a book or you, you, you know they, they they've seen it all. And so um, yeah, don't don't uh, we can't we can't leave them out of the conversation when we're talking about some of the most uh, prolific and, and and cherished people than. Uh, in the sports world for sure. So let's talk about Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. Again, yeah. you know, you're working with some of the greatest athletes in the world. We'll get to the Lakers in, in a few minutes, but many people listening to this just recently watched the last dance documentary. And I'm so happy that documentary was done because kids of this generation, like my daughter, who's 15 and a half, it was kind of an introduction for them to who Michael Jordan was. Mm-hmm. And you know, what he, what he, many people think he's the greatest basketball player ever. I know you guys had a close relationship, obviously Scottie Pippen. So I'll ask for some stories in a minute, but building a trust with elite athletes. I mean, you look at someone like Michael Jordan, every single detail of what he does in his life, he strives for perfection. So how do you earn someone's trust who's that perfect? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. I, I, I think that you have to really, really match their dedication. And so, you know, I, I guess if I would, would, would illustrate that with, with an anecdote about, 
you know, as dedicated as he was to, to perfecting his craft as a basketball player, anytime he was uh, unfortunate enough to, to, to maybe suffer an injury, uh, you know, one of my, my you know, protocols at that time would be we'd obviously do rehab and treatment during the day, during a practice time. And then we all lived close enough that it was not at all unusual for me to, to meet people back at the facility again later on in the evening, maybe after dinner, to get a second treatment in. And I, I could have an arrangement with him. Okay, I'll, well, I'll meet you back here at 7 o'clock tonight after dinner. And I always knew that I had to be there earlier than 7 o'clock to set up for him. And I can't tell you how many times that I walked in at 6.50 and he was already laying on the table, you know, right, right, waiting for me, like, you know, giving me those daggers, like, where have you been? And I'm like, I'm not even due here for another 10 minutes. So that, 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 that kind of a thing with just that, that, that dedication, um, you know, to, to always be as fit and healthy as he could possibly be. Uh, and, you know, if, if, he, if he did happen to have, uh, unfortunately, have to suffer an injury. He wanted to get well as quick as he could, and so, um, so I, I had to match his his passion and his discipline and his energy, you know, towards those goals too. And if I didn't, or I'd been, you know, cavalier about about his health or something in some way, or didn't seem to be as dedicated to that as he was, I probably would have lost him pretty quick. So those are the kind of pressures um, that I think when you deal with people like that, you've got to you've got to try to. Uh, match them in, in their passion and intensity in, in your area. You know, they don't expect you to necessarily, you know, um, they, they don't, they don't limit that, that sort of judgment to just people in their own industry. They, they, they expect that of everybody. And, you know, Kobe was the same way. Um, but uh, I think that's probably the key to it is you have to show that you're as dedicated uh, to it because especially when I, when I arrived there in 1990, that being on the cusp of breaking through, uh, you know, if I had gone there and I was, uh, you know, the last one to walk in the room or, or they were waiting on me all the time, I would have, I would have lost that, that trust really quick. And so I, I, I could, I could never have been that way. So I think that's probably the biggest key to that, um, to establishing that trust. And then you can, then you're off from there. Then you can, you can really build on that relationship in other ways. One of the most talked about Michael Jordan games ever, the quote unquote flu game. And mm-hmm. in the last dance doc, we find out, well, it wasn't really with the flu. It was, it was bad pizza. And it was yeah. food poisoning. Yeah. Is there any other time? I'm, I'm sure there's got to be some times where you were like, "Man, I'm not sure he's going to be able to play tonight," and he somehow found the will to go out and play and have a great game. Yeah, constantly. I mean, and it could have, it could have been related to, to illnesses in that case. And I, and I, and I, and I do know there's a bit of, uh, you know, I, I, I've limited that to, uh, to that particular game still as as unknown. Uh, with I, I have some. My own theories, and I, I know that there was uh, some pushback from the from the, the literally the guy that that made the pizza, if I remember correctly, reading a couple of weeks ago. Um, but uh, but whatever it was, he he certainly was in was in bad shape, and uh, his ability to play through that and other injuries and illnesses that he had when he was feeling less than 100 um, percent, just just the, the the ability to focus and and and, and uh, kind of put blinders on to all the outside distractions and how you felt, and I think that he had. You know, it, it's not unlike what you hear um, if you've ever read uh, books on or ever heard of pe- what people go through when they're going through like uh, any really arduous thing. Like, like I, I was think of like uh, Navy SEAL training, right? When you when you look, so someone like that is going through that just minute after minute. You ha- you have to almost not think of it. You have to kind of compartmentalize what you know. Just just get through the next the next play, the next possession. 
rather than looking at it like, I can't believe I got to go out there for two and a half hours and play basketball mm. feeling the way I feel. And I think if you've ever heard, you know, people that have gone through, you know, some of the elite military people getting through some of that, that training, that's the way they do. If they, if they look down and, and say, oh, I've got to do this for the next six weeks, they never make it. They're the first ones to go ring that bell and, and quit. And I think that that was sort of the mindset that, that, that Michael would have too, or just, just possession by possession, play by play, you know, minute by minute, I'm going to get through this. And I think that was probably the way he approached a lot of those situations, uh, which I think is the correct way to do it. Uh, but nobody ever did it any better. Um, and sometimes you could just see him, you know, really, you know, conserving energy and being very economical and, and, and not, you know, overexerting when he didn't have to. And, and that's where the, you know, above the neck aspect comes in because I think as, people, as much as people talk about his physical prowess, I think there's a mental component and a psychological and emotional component that, that I think is also off the charts with him too. So let's talk about that for a minute because Phil Jackson, widely known, you know, the Zen master and right. just a deep thinker and, you can tell that he brought that to the Bulls. He brought that to the Lakers. The mental aspect of the game, both with the Bulls and the Lakers, what did you observe from Phil that helped give his teams an advantage above the neck, as you call it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 again, talking about somebody that I, you know, I, I, I have all the respect in the world for, for many other very talented coaches, whether it's the Arbox and the Woodens and the, and the Popoviches and Doc Rivers and other people that are, you know, that are, that are prominently known as, as exceptional coaches. Now there's so, there's so many, so many good young ones. Nick Nurse in, in Toronto is obviously an exceptional uh, talent as a coach and, and, and others too. I don't want to, I don't want to leave anybody out, but, um, but I think it's, it's one of the areas that I, that I think that Phil really separated himself. And I think that that's most reflected in like a lot of people would say, well, you know, could, could other coaches, could, could, you know, could Doug Collins, who I think the world of as well, could, could he, would he, would the Bulls have won a championship if they would have made the coaching change or if Phil had left earlier and someone else had come in? And, I, and I'll always say, well, yeah, those teams obviously had extraordinary talent. They probably would have, there's, there's no way that, that that Bulls team wouldn't have found a way to win a championship. There's no way that those Laker teams in the early 2000s or again with the repeat with, with the Gasol Odom version of the team wouldn't have found a way but, but I think it's, it's, it's most, I think Phil is best reflected in the multiple champ, the multiple success of championships, the three three-peats and a finals and a fourth repeat with a finals three-peat. Um, and I think that that's just, uh, just a, a, his, his masterful way of sort of pushing the right buttons, not pushing the wrong buttons and, and understanding. And, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, one of the things with Phil is people, you know, um, he doesn't have a reputation particularly as having a big coaching tree, you know, with multiple branches off the tree with all these other sort of, uh, you know, uh, 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 protégés or apostles kind of going on and, and spreading his, his, his message and his coaching messages because he did it in the traditional way where like, you know, Greg Popovich has, you know, the, the Budenholzers and the Brett Browns and all these other people kind of doing it in the traditional way where they were his assistants and then they go on to head coaching jobs. But I, but I would, I would challenge that a little bit and, and even look at some of their highly successful coaches that didn't necessarily coach for Phil, but played for Phil, whether it's a Steve Kerr or a Ty Lue or a Luke Walton. Hmm. And I, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, when I, when I hear a post game analysis or a comment from any one of those guys, and I love all those guys, they'll, they'll say something that is like, so, so Phil, you know what I mean? Like, you know, to hear Ty Lue make a reference to, you know, someone being in the moment or, you know, Steve making a comment or Luke making a comment that's directly, I don't even know that they recognize it, but it, it came from, 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 um, him. 
and even I think that Phil, who, who played for, you know, for, for, for great coaches, you know, Bill Fitch in college at North Dakota, obviously, and, and, uh, Red Holtzman with the Knicks, those people all strongly influenced him too. And, and, and Phil had a great story one time that he told me about when he was, uh, about, about Red Holtzman that I think illustrates a lot of it, this sort of even keel nature. And I guess, I guess this, the story goes that there was a, a moment where, where the Knicks, when Phil played there in the early seventies, had, had, had knocked off uh, somebody for for uh, a playoff series that was going to be Boston, Philadelphia, whoever it was at the time, and one of the reporters asked Red how he was going to celebrate this, uh, this 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 playoff series win, and I guess his response was something along the lines of he was going to go home and, and have a scotch and, and some roast beef and potatoes, <laughs> and and then the reporter sort of incredulously said, "Well, that's it. What would you have done if you would have lost?" The, the, you know, the big game seven. And he said, I would have gone home and have a scotch and a, some roast beef and potatoes. In other words, this, this sort of even keel nature and that, that's filled to a T. Um, I never saw him get too high. No, no, you, you know, you were never as good as you thought you were after a big win. You were never, nothing was ever as, as horrible as it was after a tough loss. And he, I think that was really more than anything, um, that and this sort of, you know, gestalt therapy, kind of living in the moment you know the, the past is past you can't do anything about it the future you're, you're not there you can't control that all you can do is control the moment and i think that he really uh, was able to to relay that mindset to players if you ever looked at our bench in the most tense moments um you know you you, you didn't you know a lot of times you can look at a sports team you know in those tense moments and 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 you know coaches are hysterical the players are ranting and raving and you, you just just sort of chaos and it's you know, it's so. I always think of that that, uh, that that Kipling poem. If you know, if you can keep your mind about you and everyone else is, is is losing their mind, sort of a thing. You know, that 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 sort of uh, that sort of mindset of, of of just being able to stay calm in the moment. I think he did that better than than anybody ever. Um, and so I think that was more than anything. I think I, I, I think he's vastly underrated in other areas of of tactics and strategy and, and, and as a teacher and a coach, all those things. I think he's a he's a ten out of ten on all those things. But I think the thing that that really separates him is that is that um, just his nature and his authenticity, and that was was really what uh, makes him special to me. Well, something I was reminded of in the the last dance doc, how he dealt with Dennis Rodman. And yeah. I mean, you, you look at a few of the examples there. Rodman like needs a mental break. So he goes off to Vegas for a few days. Like if that happened today, <laughs> he'd yeah. be all over social media. People would have video and pictures of Rodman in Vegas right. on social media. But Phil was like, all right, I'm just going to let Dennis Dennis and do his thing. And then he's going to come back and, and, I don't know that any other coach could have handled it that way and had it work out the way that it did. Right. Well, he, so, so, you know, if you remember the, the kind of exact chronology, Scotty had been out. And so Dennis, um, we, we started off that season kind of rough. And then, and then, you know, there's a moment, a, a series of games over a several week, maybe a month span while we're still waiting on Scotty to come back from, from, um, his, his rehab and surgery. And Dennis was just on his absolute best behavior and was just a monster, uh, playing with unbelievable focus and so you know phil knew him well enough at that time to know that he needed to kind of throw him a you know throw him a bone a little bit uh because he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to maintain that but if he had a chance to maybe recharge his batteries that he could come back and deliver that again and that again that's you're, you're exactly right his his sense of what people needed and, and and being able to push players buttons individually 
was just just masterful. Um, and, and and Dennis came back and, and was you know quite humble. And I, I think as, as Michael recalled, was you know even after a, a, a few a few days in Vegas, came back and was you know le- leading the wind sprints like he had, had missed a beat. You know, and so because uh, then I think Dennis, being Dennis, felt compelled to reciprocate. You know, with with the same dedication he'd had, and that was his way of showing. Phil, that I, you know, I, I, I appreciate. It. I'm not gonna let you down. You, you did something for me, and I'm gonna reciprocate uh, back with, with my same big effort again. So, a few more things on the Bulls before we move on to the Lakers. Uh, I think I recall. Weren't you in one of Michael Jordan's Gatorade commercials? I did. That was actually uh, the, the the first year, and I, I've got a. Uh, I think it was originally a, a, a VHS tape that's now been put on a, on a disc, and I'm wearing these uh, god awful Zubas pants that were all the rage in the early 90s. <laughs> I remember those. Yeah, I, I was. I was able to. Uh, I think I still remember my line, and I flipped the ball over my, my shoulder, and he dunked, they, he dunked it, and we had a little uh, a little humorous moment at the end when he kind of mocked my acting skills. And yeah, I, I was. Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't know if that got national play, but it was certainly regional because it would be in. Some different cities we traveled to, and I would I would get recognized for that. But um, yes, I was. That was that was my, uh, my my 15 seconds of glory. I guess was was doing a Gatorade. Commercial. So I got to know the backstory there. Is that something where MJ just comes up to you one day and he's like, "Hey, Chip, I'm doing a Gatorade commercial. Do you want to be in it?" Or does he have to like work through your agent? Or what? You know, how does that happen where you're in the Michael Jordan Gatorade commercial? Yeah, you know, I, I, that's, I can't remember if it was an idea that was pitched to him through the ad agency, which actually was a Chicago, uh, what's the name of that? Buyer Best, something, I can't remember the name of the, uh, very prominent Chicago ad agency that had, that had the Gatorade at that time. And I can't remember, uh, it's been so long, it's been 30 years, I can't remember who pitched who on it, um, and how I was approached, but I had to get a SAG card and everything, so that was my, uh, I actually probably checked, maybe I've got an IMDB profile too, and I don't even know it, but anyway, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, wound up taking a couple hours, uh, some evening after we finished practice. And, and I, I remember them actually, uh, when it, when it came to the wardrobe, I think I was, the day they came to meet with me and showed me the script, uh, I was wearing the, the same, uh, tiger print, uh, black and red Zubas pants. And they, and I said, well, how should I dress? And they looked at me and said, that's perfect. Just wear, wear that. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And, uh, and that, that's how, that's how that came off. Um, but he, but he certainly, uh, sanctioned it and was happy to do it. He was, he was great about it. He was, he was, uh, magnanimous as always about that. And it was a lot of fun. That's really amazing, Chip, because yeah. the respect that he has for you to like say, Hey, let's get you in one of my commercials. You don't, yeah. I, I can't really think of someone else in your position that's been in a star athlete's commercial, to be honest with huh. you. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I know that there was, um, so maybe some people doing some of the with those got milk ads or something, but it was uh, but that was a lot of fun and it was really nice uh, for to him uh, give that kind of acknowledgement to an athletic trainer um, who you know we we often kind of toil in anonymity uh, and so I think that was a real nice gesture on his part and it was greatly appreciated. It made made, it, made a couple extra bucks in it and it was it was a lot of fun. So. That's awesome. The last dance doc. Was there anything when you watched it, and again, you were in it, but was there anything after you saw the finished product where you were like, either I learned something I didn't know, or wow, I wish they would have told that part of the story? Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting about it is I, I, I think that uh, they, I think they only used a, a fraction, I don't know what percent, but, but a very small fraction, probably less than 5%. Of, of the video they showed it probably 95 percent of that still sitting in a can wow. uh, in, in andy thompson's uh hall closet 
Um, you know, they had so much other footage from other things that they spliced in, but the, what they shot that last year, uh, they only used a fraction of that. And so that was one of the things that was kind of interesting uh, about it. But uh, the, the things that I, that I think that I enjoyed the most about it, first of all, it was like, you know, what, somebody pulling out old home movies. I mean, I saw, you know, my, my son, who was just a boy at the time, he used to work as a ball boy in the background and a couple of interesting shots. And so that was sort of fun on a personal level to do that. And, and you know, it's been such a long time that you, I, I saw video clips of myself doing things that I don't even remember doing. Um, but it was but it was a lot of fun. Um, and I think it was great for people. I, one of the things that I think I really enjoyed uh, and I hope people other people enjoyed watching it was a chance to see Michael. Um, at, at his authentic self, you know, so often people uh, of prominence like that, you know, when they're in front of the camera, they're, 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 they're you know, a certain way, you know, there's a, a polished nature to the, how they interact. And I was so happy to see him uh, so authentic, so himself, uh, because that's a side that not a lot of people um, had a chance to see only, only the people that are sort of, you know, in the kind of inner sanctum. And I think he uh, let the world inside a little bit. I thought that was great of him to do that. And I hope people appreciate it as much, uh, as, as I did to, to let it, to the fact that he was, uh, you know, allowed people to see him, um, and that, that intensity and that, that, uh, perfectionism that, that drove him so much, I think was, was great to see. You know, one of my favorite parts, Chip, was his relationship with his security guards. And oh yeah, it's beautiful. You yeah. know, just yeah. the the security guard. I'm sure you know his name. Uh, who shrugged his shoulders and just because the part where he talked about it's tough being him and you've got to yeah. be in your hotel room and and you're hiding in the security office playing quarters with the security guys. It really gave an interesting sense. And, and imagine that was at a time where there wasn't social media and there weren't cameras on your phones and it was still almost unbearable for him to go out in public but when you saw him with those people and not to degrade them but look they weren't vips they were right. you know uh, ordinary people and he treated them with such respect and and the relationship he had with them it was almost like he he just liked being one of the guys yeah, uh, very cool. And, and, and what, um, you know, a couple of, uh, several of the shots, you saw how it was when we would get to a hotel, uh, and, you know, the, the, the throngs of people waiting outside. So he really, he, he couldn't just walk out the front door of a hotel and walk down the street and walk into a restaurant. I mean, he literally could, couldn't do that. And that got, that just grew year by year to the point where it just it was just nuts. But all those guys were all off duty Chicago police officers. And those were rough tough guys. I mean, guys that worked in vice and homicide and, and narcotics. And a lot of them were, you know, Vietnam veterans and, and just the, the hardest, toughest of, of, of tough guys who, you know, you, you'd see their, their, their soft real side when they would be with, with us. And that was his chosen company was, you know, a bunch of blue collar Chicago cops. And those are the people that he felt most comfortable with, you know, uh, playing cards with in his hotel room and maybe enjoying a cigar and, and, you know, and a beer on a, on a you know, on a, on an evening of a non-game night, and, and that's that's the company he chose to keep, and I think that really says a lot about who he was too. And then I think a lot of the stuff on the one particular officer, Gus Lett, who really became like a surrogate father to him, you know, as as he said, uh, was was really special and really beautiful, and it was really you know obviously a very sad moment when we when we lost Gus, um, but uh, but it was it was very cool, and I think it that really says a lot about him too and, and how he you know he could have been out with the you know the, with the rich and famous but he'd rather hang out with a bunch of chicago cops was was, was very cool and i gave insight into who he he really was in his real character last thing on the bulls we learned at the end of the last dance doc 
that when it was all over, I guess the team went into a room and they wrote something on a piece of paper and each of them yeah. put it into a, a little fire. Yeah. Were you in the room? Yeah, I, I was, I was in and I contributed to that. It was a, in, in a coffee can, like a number 10, you know, uh, metal coffee can. And, and it was something that, that Phil had asked everybody to do is sort of just write down, um, just how they felt about, about everything kind of coming to an end. And, and, and I, I, I can't remember verbatim, uh, what, what Michael wrote, but I, but I know it was like, uh, you know, again, like a, like a kid getting a homework assignment and wanting to get an A on it. And he wrote something, you know, really beautiful and thoughtful and, and, and everybody r- read what they wrote. And there was kind of this moment that, that, that again is something that, that only Phil could have done uh, and done authentically, you know, whether it was a, a burning incense or, or meditating, what have you, any other coach trying to do those things would, would come off as, as so fake and, and the players wouldn't, wouldn't do it, but it's so, it was so authentic with him and, and the players, um, you know, gave every, gave, gave everything they had to everything and they were full participants in those, those type of things too. And it was really a, a cool moment. And I don't know where, where Phil came up with the idea, but he did. And, and, you know, a very small intimate group of whatever it would have been, you know, 16, 17, 18 of us in the room, the players, coaches and myself. And, and, uh, it was just one more real cool thing that, uh, that he brought to the table and I was privileged to be a part of. What was the sense in that room? Was it, this is it? Like, this is the end or was it, wow, we really achieved something amazing or was it both? Yeah, I, I think it was a little bit of both. I think that by the time, you know, one of, one of the things that, that, you know, in the documentary that, that Michael talked a lot about that I think, um, you know, that, that, that desire to maybe have come back and, and, and given it another run. You know, it's funny, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and I think that, that maybe people's me- memories are, you know, time, time has an effect on how we, how we are. And my recollection is everybody was, was pretty exhausted and, and we were pretty much on fumes at that time. And I, I, I thought it was a pretty perfect way to end it. I know that, that maybe the way, you know, him making that comment might have rekindled some people like, oh, they could have, they should have done, done one more. And, you know, and who, who knows what might have happened, but I, but I do think it had a, a pretty perfect ending to it. And I think that it was, you know, my recollection of, of that moment in particular with the, you know, with the burning of the, of the, of the notes and of the personal, you know, thoughts and things. Uh, go all the way through that last final game um, in Utah was that that it was it felt appropriate it felt it felt right it felt like uh, you know that it had reached a, per- a perfect sort of you know zenith of, of everybody's experience there uh, and, and so it was it was sort of uh, you know uh, sort of a, a bit of a melancholy nature to it but it was also uh, sort of a moment of, of closure that I think that people need in relationships and stuff too. And I think it was, as he so often did, I think that, I think that Phil kind of struck the perfect note with that gesture and everyone appreciated it. All right. So that's the end of that era and that team. Then you wind up with the Lakers. Explain to us, how do you go from the Bulls to the Lakers? And, you know, then Phil Jackson becomes the coach of the Lakers. Yeah, so so that was interesting. So I, I, after the '98 season, my my uh, wife and I made the decision to move back uh, to Southern California, back where a lot of her family lived, and, and we were ready to, ready for a change and the, to go back and kind of um, you know start a new chapter down there. And at the time, I was also you know personally kind of burnt out with the travel and the demands, and I was sort of seeking a more normal life, at least for, for the time being. And so ironically, again, how, how Michael kind of worked his way into a lot of chapters in my life. He was on the board of directors at Oakley, uh, which is based in Foothill Ranch in, in Orange County, California, which is exactly where I went back to move because that's where my, my wife's family was from. And so, um, 
they they were they had created a position there, uh, sort of targeting and marketing with with team sales and stuff. And so I took a a regular, really the only time in my life I've had a regular kind of nine to five job, and I was there for about a half a year or so, uh, and had been you know keeping contact obviously with Phil throughout that time. And um, you know June of of that uh, ninety nine, uh, he, had, he had taken a job with the Lakers, and he he wanted me back on the staff. And what was interesting was, you know, the Lakers already had a had a superb uh, athletic trainer and, and, a, and a dear friend of mine, uh, Gary Vitti, who had been there for for many many years. Um, and it also just the year before hired a strength conditioning coach. They were one of the last teams. There's this period of time between kind of starting in the mid late '80s through the through the mid '90s was when uh, NBA teams had sort of grown their staffs out uh, to start hiring full time strength coaches. I, I'd actually done that job as a, on a part time basis for the Lakers back during the um, 86, 87 season, uh, while working at the Curl and Joe Clinic. This is the year before I got to Loyola, actually. Uh, but a lot of teams had people just kind of on a part-time basis coming in a couple of days a week to do that. Uh, but the Lakers had hired, uh, a full-time strength coach in, in 1997. Um, and so when, when Phil had gone there in 99, uh, but wanted me on the staff, you know, it became necessary to, to, to find a position. And so we, you know, the fact that I was dual certified in both of those areas, athletic training, you know, on the medical side and then strength conditioning on the performance side, they, they agreed to create a position for, for me to fill kind of building a, with the idea that I would kind of build the bridge between those, those two rooms, which actually was sort of a little bit ahead of its time, you know, um, that type of integrated, Healthcare performance care uh, now in 2020 is is everyone does it now, but it was kind of you know cutting edge at that time. We, we were kind of you know trendsetters, I think, a little bit, um, sort of by happenstance. And so I joined the team in that role, uh, you know, sort of a dual role of both on both the medical side and the performance side, working with you know Gary Vitti in the training room and then with uh, Jim Cotta, the strength coach at that time, in the weight room. And within years, virtually every team in the league had had someone in a similar role. Um, doing that, and so then over that next 12 years, from 1999 through 2011, um, I, I fulfilled that role with sort of different ratios of of those rooms. Where that first year was pretty much 50-50. Uh, I, I took on some other things around 2003 or four. The NBA established their player development program, which was um, they wanted to have somebody on every staff kind of work with some of the off court development and things like that too. So I'd I'd volunteer to do that. So I was taking on some different different tasks and roles. Uh, over that 12 years with the Lakers, but it was primarily, uh, those, those two things again, both, both, you know, doing the, the, the medical and the rehab side of things as well as some of the high performance, um, stuff in the weight room, uh, working with Alex McKechnie, who, who was a, a longtime colleague of mine, but now is in the same role that I'm in, uh, in, with the Toronto Raptors and is, is, uh, you know, one of the best in the world at what he does. Um, so we had, we had actually had a very, very good, very talented, um, staff of people that I work with with the Lakers that was a real privilege and I thought we did some some real cutting edge stuff there too that uh, and we're, we're you know quite progressive in our thinking um, you know and kind of changing a lot of the practices around around the league at that time too so uh, so that's what I did my, my, my role for 12 years uh, changed a little bit um, I was able to grow a little bit into some other areas that were very exciting for me too. I want to ask you about Kobe and Shaq in a minute but you bring up Alex with the Raptors yeah, right a lot of people may have read his name last year. He really yeah. came up with the load management program for right. Kawhi and right. kept Kawhi fresh. And then we saw what Kawhi was in the playoffs. You talk about innovations over the time that you've been doing this, Chip. It's been a long period of time. Yeah. 
I can't imagine Michael Jordan would have ever come to you and said, you know what? I need to load manage tonight. <laughs> but, uh, that, but that's, now that's, that's what true. they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, and, and, uh, and I'm happy to, to, to talk about Alex because he's such a, a dear friend and such a, uh, a mentor and, and, and someone that I hold in such high regard personally and professionally. But, but one of the things that I think gets, gets mistaken was in, in the load management stuff that, that came into, you know, kind of came into the scene over the last couple of years, but really hit kind of, uh, in, in, in prominence with the highly successful way that Alex did manage Kawhi with some of his chronic issues last year. And I think a lot of people mistakenly looked at load management as just rest. Like, oh, you're just not going to play that game and you're going to sit and rest all day. No, not, nothing could have been further from the truth. And I don't want to give away Alex's trade secrets, and I'm not going to do that here. But just suffice it to say, those, those weren't days that, he, that Kawhi was resting, doing nothing. Those were days that he was doing some very targeted uh, work. And some of it could have been uh, you know, fairly significant amount of work. It just wasn't playing in an NBA basketball game, but he was doing work. And, and that was the type of thing that, that, that Alex, uh, uh, nobody does it better, quite frankly. Uh, and I was very happy to see him get the kind of attention that he got for that last year. It was a long time coming. I, Alex is very, his name is very prominently known in other world. You know, he's, he's, uh, uh, originally from Scotland and, and has been in Canada for a number of years practicing. His, his, his name has been very prominent, you know, in, in Canada and also in the world of soccer and hockey and other other areas where he'd worked previously. But it's been great to see um, him get that 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 prominence in our world of uh, of, of pro basketball too. Um, well well deserved. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I uh, my, my, the idea of uh, Michael took great pride in playing, you know, eighty two games. And he, even I think the last year that we were all together in LA in two thousand eleven, I think we had six or seven players over the age of 30, if I'm not mistaken, that year that played 82 games and how, how much that's changed over the years. I don't think anyone even considers 82 as a goal where, you know, for many, many years, that was a bit of a badge of honor to play them. I mean, that's, that's how many they schedule, right? So that's, that was sort of the expectation. And now it's that, that kind of change. And I think the league has, you know, has tried to make modifications in the schedule, cutting back on, back-to-backs of things but actually you know that the, the law of unintended consequences there have been a lot of things that have happened with with uh you know instead of having back-to-back games which would then you know give you back-to-back non-game days now we, we i feel like we get into patterns where we're playing games every other day and that presents new challenges and sort of how we how we manage players uh loads and stuff too so there's there's you know never a dull moment when we're trying to get these guys through uh, and navigate the season so when did it change was it you know some people say well Greg Popovich, when he started load managing Duncan and Robinson, and it was the Spurs. When did this change when we went from that badge of honor for playing 82 games to there's no one that's going to play 82 games now because your body's yeah. not meant for that? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I know that a lot of attention um, – came to the Spurs and Greg Popovich when, you know, I think, I, I think he actually, you know, was, was kind of making a point when they had a big national TV game and he, he didn't just rest up player. I think he sat like, you know, Duncan Ginobili and Parker and, you know, um, and Bowen or something, you know, all on the same game. And I think that's where it drew a lot of attention. I think the idea of, of managing those things, and I, I can tell you quite frankly, back 30 years ago, my first couple of years in Chicago, we, we had players that were getting, up there in years that were that were, were critical for our success in the postseason. You know, Bill Cartwright comes to mind, John Paxson comes to mind, and we would we would target. You know, at that time, uh, if you went on the injured list, it was it was a minimum of five games, and so we would look for places in the schedule. Uh, you know, uh, the second half of the season in particular, where we would we would shut down 
um, you know, a player like Cartwright, who we knew was so critical for our success in the postseason, because we would be looking at, you know, potentially having a series against, you know, Cleveland and Brad Doherty, a series against the Knicks and Patrick Ewing, a series, you know, um, against Atlanta with Kevin Willis. I mean, you think of, you know, Indiana with Rick Smith. I mean, it just seems like every team had, had, you know, very, very good, talented, very big, uh, you know, centers. Um, and so Bill was critical to that. And so we would usually pick a, a time, you know, where the schedule wasn't very dense and where we could get that five games, maybe spread over a couple week period. And we would, uh, you know, shut him down. Because at that by that point maybe his patellar tendonitis was was really flared up or he was having an issue with his back or hip or something, and, but we would also use that not only to shut that down and get those those ailments resolved, but to, to kind of start building them up and establish a training base too. And so um, where where it began, I know we were doing it, you know, in the early '90s. I, I know that uh, I remember a, a, a series in the '80s where where the Lakers sat a bunch of guys in the last game of the season against Portland, and, and the league, you know, that was a bit controversial. So I think it does go back, um, but just wasn't as, as talked about. But I think that people have always tried to take a long view of the season, especially when you're when you're a good team that has championship aspirations and you're going to be playing. Uh, you know, in, in normal years, well into June, um, and, and, may, and may may approach 100 or more games in some years. Uh, you do have to pace yourself a bit, and so I think people try to manage that either with practice. I think it's kind of a shame the the game thing. I think we we still have to keep working to find a better resolution to that because I think that you know I always feel bad for the uh, that that family that, that bought the tickets for the game. Uh, you know, months in advance and spend a fortune on that. And then, and then maybe their favorite players not playing that night. I think we've got to try and do a better job of finding, finding answers for that where we're not sitting players out of regular season games. Uh, that's my, my two cents on the issue. Hopefully we can, we can find a way to do that. All right. So you go from Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen to Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, gosh, Chip, that's living the charm life right there. Yeah. And yeah. So many people have said, you know, Kobe is the closest thing to MJ that we ever saw. And, you know, unfortunately, after Kobe passed, we heard MJ speak about Kobe at his memorial service with such, you know, he was my little bro. And no one really ever cracked that code with Jordan where he let them in. And it seemed like he did with with Kobe. What are some of your memories from Kobe and Shaq. I'm sure we could do five hours on, on just those, but in a nutshell here, what was the thing that made them so great? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, they, they were very different, um, different people. And, and, and Kobe always sort of carried an air, air of seriousness about, about him and, and Shaquille, which, you know, surprises absolutely no one to hear, um, is, is, is a fun loving person by, by nature. And so there were times that that probably those personality traits probably clashed a bit. I do think a lot of the, you know, Shaq and Kobe, uh, things were maybe, uh, from, from my view, were, were, were possibly a little bit blown out of proportion. Um, uh, I mean, certainly they had their, their differences. And, and I think that, that, you know, there's a, a natural thing, you know, whether it's a, a, a band that you love, like, you know, why, why did the Beatles break up? Why did the police break up? Why, you know, that, that, that happens where people just sort of want, want their own thing and, and maybe grow a little bit tired of each other and working together and just are looking for something, something different. Um, but I think that, that collaboratively on the court, uh, and I think, you know, again, getting back to, to Phil's ability to, to, to bring really talented, you know, if he, if he has any forte, it's the ability to bring really talented people 
together and sort of sublimate their egos a little bit and put some of those things aside for the greater good. And he was able to do that with, 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 you know, with those two guys as well. And I think they, they really largely did that, um, through, you know, that, through that finals in 2004 against Detroit when it all sort of ended. And I think one of the unfortunate things with, with, with that was just, I don't think it was by design. I think they were both free agents in the same year. And maybe that was, you know, looking back, that would, that might have been a thing. You know, to, to, to the general managers and owners out there, if you've got two stars on a team, maybe you don't have them both up for free agency the same year, um, would be a thing to consider. But, uh, but I think it did kind of come to a head in that year and that there was, um, certainly some things related to, to how they were perceived and valued, uh, that, that maybe, um, kind of blew up a little bit and, and that which led to Shaquille being traded to Miami. But, but I think, I, I, you know, I prefer to dwell on all the positive things and the three titles and, and things that, that happened and the four trips to the finals and, and, and some of the great successes that they had together. And I think it was great, um, you know, that they, that they really clearly reconciled, uh, prior to, to Kobe's tragic passing, um, earlier this year. Uh, it was very clear that they, that they both, uh, had grown, you know, as, as men and as people and put a lot of those differences behind them and were able to reflect back on, on all the, all that they were able to achieve together. Um, which I think was great. You know, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable success that they had together and, and, and the, uh, kind of the dynamism of, of, of those teams and the personality of those teams was, was great. And I, and I think it's, I think it is true. I think that, that Kobe is for sure, you know, if they're one A and one B, he's, he's the closest to, to Michael you're ever going to see. So. Mm. The Mamba mentality, we've heard about yeah. that many, many times. Is there a story that you can think of where this was like vintage Mamba mentality? Yeah, I, I, I look at that largely, you know, if there's a subtle difference between him and, and, and Michael, I think a lot of that would have been that, that Michael, um, you know, that, that their, their work ethic is, is both, you know, off the charts, 10 out of 10. Uh, but, but I think that, that, that Michael, um, probably to some extent could, could, could put a, a limit on that and say, okay, I've gotten my work done. Now I'm going to go, you know, enjoy a cigar and enjoy the company of my friends and I'm going to relax. Kobe, it felt like during my time with him almost never shut that off. And I, and I, and I think that could be illustrated with, you know, we, we, we could have played a game, gotten on an airplane, traveled to the next city, gotten into the next city. It's, it's, it's two 30 in the morning. We've, we've sent the luggage to everybody's room and he would, he would want to stretch. So there I would be in his room, you know, stre- stretching him or something. And, and, and so that was just like, if there was a, a list of, a list of things to do to do it, to do something perfect, a perfect recovery, a perfect way to train, a perfect, he wanted to check every box on that where, where I think maybe Michael was able to say, okay, I've, I've done, you know, whatever this dose I need of, 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 of training or of exercise or whatever. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to enjoy some me time. Kobe almost seemed to never shut, shut that off. I, I think the exception to that was his family. Uh, he, he was as dedicated and loving of, of a father. That was the only thing that, that, that topped basketball for him was his family. I mean, mm-hmm. he loved those, those girls and his, his wife, like, like no tomorrow. So that was the one thing like where he would, if I ever got a, you know, a call from him, Hey, I, 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 I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to make, you know, training tomorrow. Maybe it would have been off season in the summer in August that we were supposed to, he always liked doing stuff before dawn. And so he would kind of contact me, you know, I think of like, First day of school, he wanted to be as a dad. He wanted to be. He wanted to take his little girl to school. So maybe we we missed a day of training for that, you know. So that that would so that I think that illustrates that the only thing he ever put above 
that was was family and his and his children. And I think that so he wanted to be the best. <laughs> he wanted to be the best at everything. So he wanted to be the best dad too, which I think is is, is pretty neat. So yeah, I think it's very neat. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, just a, a physical specimen. Again, we saw him is a, a skinny young guy when he was at LSU yeah. and they were playing LMU. And then he just grew and got more muscles and, and just in the NBA was a beast in the paint. Yeah. Very different bodies with Kobe and, and Shaq. But what was it like? You know, you said he was fun loving and his personality reminds me more of like a Hank Gathers personality. Yeah. But I, in I, his own way, it, he was he was dominant, too. Yeah, I, I, I think that I think that's a, a good point. I think that the fun loving part, um, and that now reflecting back on our original point about about Hank, Hank was probably would have been a, a blend of those two, where he had he had the fun loving nature of Shaquille and the work discipline of of of, of, of Kobe. Hmm. Um, but uh, I think that that uh, you know Shaquille just had so many other 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 interests, and and he was so blessed with the physical tools that. He, he didn't have to, I mean, you know, who, who among us, if you're already the best at something, you know, now you're telling me you want me to do even more work? I mean, I'm already like, you know, three finals, three finals MVP. So what, what are you going to, you know, wh- why would I do more when I'm already the most dominant player here? And I think that's a very reasonable thing for the, the, the in human nature to be that way. Um, you know, but, but when it came to competing, uh, on the floor in games, then he was, I mean, he, he was as, as tough a competitor, uh, as, as I've ever, as I've ever worked with. Um, and I just think, you know, when you get the combination of, of blessed tools, you know, he, he's interesting because as big as he was, he, he, he had almost a, a very proportional body. Like he almost was like a, like a six, two, you know, stud athlete that just was expanded bigger rather than a typical seven footer sort of has, you know, sort of almost a more kind of a gangly quality and some other sort of biomechanical characteristics. But Shaquille was, was, was so proportionately built. He was like, you had a regular sized great athlete who was just bigger. And I I think, you know, his, um, his coordination and his athletic ability was very uh, uncommon for somebody of that size. You know what I mean? I mean, just, you know, things like, you know, other, you know, he, he could, he could, throw a football or, or hit a tennis ball or do other things. Just, you're just very athletically talented and you just so rare to see that in a person that, that of that physical stature and size. And I think that's, that's what really separated him from, from other people. All right. So I want to fast forward now to today. Yeah. Um, COVID is going on and we're in a time like we've never been in, in, in our lifetimes. And, and we're talking about, you know, a restart, to the NBA season, the Bulls will not be part of that restart, so mm-hmm. you won't be in Orlando. But typically, and I know this isn't one size fits all because everyone's bodies are, are different, but you've had a three month layoff. It's almost like, you know, an off season, so to speak. Now you're going to be trying to get back in shape and, and potentially compete for a championship. How would you treat this? How, how do you look at this, you know, in order to get guys back in shape to, Hit fast forward and, and, you know, make a run in the playoffs. Yeah. I, uh, 
I, I don't know whether I, if I feel fortunate or unfortunate. I obviously would have been nice to, to have been participating when, you know, when the, the NBA is having a party and invites only 22 teams. And I think it was, uh, John Hollinger who, who coined the phrase delete eight. And unfortunately we're, we're part of that group. Um, so, so we're, we're not facing some of those challenges. I, I'm actually, uh, have, I'm on the uh, the NBA has a, a sports science committee that I've been a member of uh, for for years since its inception, and we've had weekly calls on this dating all the way back into March about some of these challenges the teams are going to have to face. And one of the things that was early on that people talked about was they they were kind of comparing some of these things to you know looking for precedent, and they were looking at some of the past years of of lockouts. And I would say, well, it's nothing like that at all because even during lockouts, people still had you know freedom of movement. They could go to a gym, they could work out. You know, we, we had guys, you know, sort of sheltering, um, in situations where I think they were, they might have been in a, you know, at a 1200 square foot apartment with no, with no equipment. You right. Know, and you can't even go outside and go for a run or, or if you do, you're going to go run on a concrete sidewalk and you can't get into a, a gym to pick up a ball. And, and, you know, your, your strength and resistance work is mostly body weight and maybe some bands or maybe we find a way to get you a set of dumbbells or something. So these guys had a period of, you know, six, seven, eight weeks of, of very, very low level, uh, you know, physical activity at all. And then, and then, you know, going through this, this ramp up period of this restart. And obviously there probably were some players, as we know, that, that are fortunate enough to be, have been sheltering in a 10,000 square foot mansion with a full gym. Right. You know, in it too. You know, so, so of the 400 plus NBA players, you'd have this, this great disparity between those two, those two things. Um, I do think that the league has been, uh, about as wise as they can be with, with the ramp up. I think most teams have been able to get back in their facilities, uh, in May. So that would be, you know, most of the month of May and most of the month of June before everybody, before those 22 teams depart for Orlando. And I believe the schedule has three more weeks of, of, of training and practicing there before another about two week period where the teams are going to knock out eight games and then the playoffs will begin. So I think that the opportunity for most people to get to their players, uh, in May, um, and or at least by the first of June and have a four to six week gradual ramp up, I think they can probably uh, safely get back to at least a, a, a base and foundation of fitness for that three week kind of quote unquote training camp period in Orlando, where I think that they'll, they'll be able to build up enough resiliency that those type of soft tissue, you know, muscular tendinous injuries that, that would, you know, frankly scared me had they tried to try to fast track this. I, I, but, you know, I have my fingers crossed. Obviously I hope for the best for everybody. I, I, I would think there, there, you know, there's a likelihood that there are some, that there will be some, uh, players that will probably suffer. So hopefully very minor soft to soft tissue injuries in that, in that ramp up through the three week period, um, in July before they resume games, I believe, uh, uh, July 31st or August 1st, they're going to start playing the games in Orlando again. Um, but, uh, but I think for the most part, I, I would think that, uh, particularly with the, with the very talented staffs that every NBA team has, I would hope that they would be able to avoid, uh, any, any real disasters and, and any, any injuries that they would have would be limited to some relatively mild soft tissue injuries that, that, that could resolve quickly and, and players won't be lost for games. And I think, you know, we referred to the load management earlier. I think people are going to be doing that throughout those eight games and kind of using that as much of a exhibition. Season two, there'll be some teams that'll still be competing for playoff 
uh, slots. Um, but I think that a lot of those, those positions are, are, are kind of locked in. I think as you look at the standings when we stopped, I think a lot of those things were, were, were kind of firming up a little bit. So, um, I would think that people will be able to, to, to safely navigate through this period. Um, but it certainly will present challenges for everybody. That's for sure. What about the mental aspect? We see Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, a lot of players have been outspoken about the mental aspect of playing sports. What do you see there as far as not just this period of time, but in general, again, you've been doing this for a long time, 25, 30 years ago, we weren't really talking about that. It's much more prevalent today. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's been a great development that, that that's come to the forefront. And I, I take my hat off to those athletes themselves that were able to um, have the strength to make those kind of personal disclosures. You know, it's very difficult. I, I think, you know, um, professional sports, certainly there's a level of kind of uh, machismo that's associated with being a, a pro athlete. And I think for, for people to let us, you know, the, the world in, uh, really says a lot about players like, like DeRozan and Love to be able to do that. And I think it's been, you know, so again, kind of coming back to some stuff with, with Phil, um, those aspects, those of, of mental health and of the psychological component to this is something that, that we, uh, we often embrace dating back, you know, to our time with the Bulls in the nineties. We were, we were very proactive in addressing that. Our time with the Lakers, we had some really talented uh, people uh, working with our players at that time on those issues. Um, but, but I do think it's, it's, it's something that the league at large and that teams individually are doing a much better, uh, uh, job of addressing now with, with players. Um, and I think it's a, it's a good thing. And I think hopefully that trickles down into the grassroots programs where, where young players, college players, high school players, and people in general aren't afraid of making those disclosures and seeking out help when they need it. Last question for you. I appreciate all of your time today. Oh, my pleasure. What's the future for you? I mean, you've been doing this a long time and, and, you know, sometimes people want to do different things or sometimes they want to, you know, again, going back to our, our radio announcer analogy earlier, like Vin Scully, Chick Hearn, you know, these guys go on forever. What do you want to do in the future? Well, I, I love what I'm doing now. You know, my, my current role with the team as, as staffs have expanded exponentially over the years and over the decades. You know, I was a staff of one. My first year with the Bulls, I even did equipment. I yeah. travel stuff. We have like nine people now that do the things that I did then. <laughs> and that's my, my current role as a, as a director of overseeing, you know, the, the, the training room, the weight room, the, you know, the, um, you know, the nutrition, all these other different facets of, of the, that comprise performance and health. Uh, you know, my, my career has sort of wearing all these different hats and, and being where I've been has sort of led to this. So I'm at a, a kind of the pinnacle of, of what, of, of my field of, of what I've been able to do. And so I love what I do. I love where I'm doing it. Uh, certainly it's been great to come home and kind of put it, you know, go full circle. Um, but I also love working with young people as we, as we, you know, kind of move on to the next generation. I'm, I'm ready to, to hopefully pass the, the baton over the next few years just to, to other people and, and serve as a mentor to people. Uh, you know, I've got some other, other little things in my mind. I've, I've been toying with a couple of, you know, some writing projects, whether they're screenplays or books or what have you. And, and I wouldn't mind doing some teaching. So I, I you know, I want to continue to stay busy. I think I've got a few more years in the NBA doing what I'm doing under my belt. And then hopefully I'll, I'll enjoy a very active retirement at some point. And, um, you know, but, uh, but I'll, I think I'll always stay busy and I'll always have at least, uh, you know, one finger still kind of in this industry that, that I love so much and it's been so good to me. 
Any hint as to what a Chip Schaefer screenplay might look like? <laughs> that's interesting. Not, yeah, not, not even things necessarily related to sports. Just other 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 things that uh, through through my my life that I think might uh, you know might might be fun to to share and just fun projects that that uh, I may collaborate with with uh, with my daughter or something on and just just some fun just some fun stuff. But but certainly even maybe a, a book. I've been kind of um, urged by some people to maybe look at, at uh, a book, you know, almost more of a, not so much a, a tell-all book, but maybe almost like a, a textbook that maybe uh, athletic trainers might, might be able to use mm. in an athletic, athletic training curriculum that, that might be good for, for, for would-be uh, athletic trainers that are still in college and kind of seeking out uh, career decisions that, that maybe help uh, give some guidance and, and share some tales, good and, good and bad and everything in between, and, and, uh, and hopefully pass along some knowledge and experience. Well, if anyone could teach a master class on performance health, it is you, my friend. Chip Schaefer, the owner of 11 championship rings, six with the Bulls, five with the Lakers. You know, look, I'll say this to you. You have worked with some of the greatest athletes and coaches ever who, like I said earlier, they strive for perfection. So the fact that you've been able to work with these teams says so much about you because Look, if you weren't perfect like them or, or close to perfect, they they would have found someone else. So it, it just really speaks to the caliber of work that you've done over the course of your career. Well, I appreciate that. I've been truly blessed uh, to work with some really talented people, and I I, uh, I always uh, defer defer to their talent. And I've just been able to to be uh, very privileged to be a, a part of about some great moments in sports and of my, uh, my favorite sport of basketball has been, been very good to me. So I must've done something right at some point. I got, I got lucky enough to, to be able to, to live this life. So Chip, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Brian, my pleasure. Always good to hear from you. You're listening Take to care. sports business radio. We'll be right back. Nearly 20 years ago, Boingo dreamed of a world where people could connect to the wireless internet anywhere with any device. Today, that dream is reality and Boingo has been at the forefront. Now more than ever, staying connected is what matters most. Boingo keeps people connected to the people and things they love with next-generation networks built for the 5G era. They are the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S., and they work with sports teams across the NFL, NBA, MLS, NCAA, and more. From 5G and CBRS to DAS and Wi-Fi, Boingo is a trusted partner for staying connected now and in the future. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Connectivity is more important than ever, and you can learn more by visiting boingo.com or emailing sbradio at boingo.com. That's sbradio at boingo.com. My guest is Ken Cohn. He is the Chief Marketing Officer for CBDMD. You've heard me talk about CBDMD because they are the official CBD partner of Sports Business Radio. You can learn more about them at www.cbdmd.com. Ken, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me. So I always love asking the people on our show, the founder's story, the, the story of how your company started. Look, CBD has become a very crowded space. How did CBDMD get started? It's a long story, but I'll give you the, the shortened version of it. Back in 2016 was really when the idea for the company was, was incubated, uh, by our, our then and even still co-CEO Scott. And, uh, from that point forward, um, 
a bunch of testing started ensuing uh, throughout 16 and 17. But really, the launch, you know, from my standpoint as the chief marketing officer began late in December of 2018 when the farm bill was signed into law. That was that was the time period. It was actually December 20th of 2018. Uh, hemp was descheduled and permanently removed from the Controlled Substances Act, the CSA, and it was also removed from the jurisdiction of the DEA. And that's really where, you know, CBD in general, let alone CBDMD, really got kickstarted. Yeah. And your background's interesting. You've worked at NASCAR. You've worked at other places. Like I said, you're now the CMO of CBDMD. How did you wind up working with CBDMD? Oh, it's actually, you know, small world, you know, who you know, I suppose. So uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I've worked... Uh, now well over two decades in in sports on the property side the agency side doing a ton of brand work and it just so happens that um uh, a friend of mine through my son um we were talking one day he's an investor in the company and he had mentioned that they were looking for someone to uh, head up marketing and they had already kind of dipped their toes a little bit, and we'll get into this during our discussion. Um, they had dipped their toe in sports a little bit, so that particular uh, piece of background was something that was intriguing to them. So I met with uh, others involved in the company, including Scott, and we just we hit it off from the beginning. And my skill set really kind of fit their vision. My vision met theirs, and off off and running we were. Yeah, that's a super important part because again. A lot of CBD companies out there, I have probably been pitched, you know, dozens of athletes over the last few years who are associated with CBD companies. And, you know, Ken, I've, I've shared this story with you. You guys stood out to me for a few reasons. One, you're THC free. The products are THC free, which was important to me. The products are third party tested. That's also very important to me. And then the fact that you're the only American CBD company listed on the New York Stock Exchange also was something that set everything that you guys do apart. You work with people like Bubba Watson. There's just a lot of credibility there. And then when I tried your product, the CBD PM product for me, I can say to my audience, and, and they've heard me talk about this before, I was not sleeping well. And since I've been using the CBD MD PM product, I sleep a full night. I mean, it's really been life changing for me. You and me both. And, and I'll tell you a little, little story about Bubba that actually links to something you just said about all the brands in, in the marketplace. So, um, yeah, like, like yourself, uh, I'm sure we both, you know, live and work long hours and the, and our sleep product has been an absolute godsend for me. Um, ironically enough, you had mentioned that, you know, you get inundated with requests from CBD companies. Well, it, that actually was the genesis of our discussion with, with Bubba and his team, including his doctor. So when we first um, connected with Bubba's team with an eye on expanding, you know, kind of what we're doing in golf and what we're doing in sports, one of the very first things we heard from his doctor was that, he was getting, you know, CBD packages shipped to him weekly. Um, and he, and frankly, he just started putting them to the side. 
because you don't know who to trust. Right. You don't know you don't know what they're made of. And then we had about an hour long conversation with him about our business, our points of difference, things that you mentioned, THC free, New York Stock Exchange, 100 percent U.S. grown, third party tested. Uh, we're now GMP certified, which is a fairly recent addition. And so uh, his, his doctor actually said, listen, I love what I'm hearing. I'm going to try the product first, which he did. And, it, and, and CBD, by its very nature, takes three to four weeks to bind with your endocannabinoid system. You have one. I have one. Your dog has one. So after about three, four weeks, he called us up and he said, okay, this stuff is legit. I'm going to have Bubba try it. So another three, four weeks go by. We had the same phone call. He was equally impressed by it. Hmm. Um, and it's a go-to for him. I mean, I, I don't want to speak for Bubba, but, but the sleep product has been very helpful. Um, the freeze product has been very helpful. And, and you know, away we went in terms of our uh, relationship with Bubba. So your CBD PM, your CBD freeze products have been voted the winner of the prestigious 2020 product of the year award in the CBD sleep aid and CBD topical categories. I love the CBD freeze. I've used that as well. You know, I ride my Peloton and I'm 51 years old now, so I get some aches and pains and being able to use the freeze product has been great. My daughter plays high school sports. She's tried other products before. She's never tried yours until recently, and she loves it now. It's now her go-to role for her aches and pains after practice and things like that. And then we have a dog, and our dog just loves the soft shoes. So, you know, we give him one soft shoe a day. He's a small guy, so we give him the the smaller dosage, but he really likes it too. And we can see he's got a shinier coat and he's a little more chill and he just uh, has a little bounce in his step. So uh, our whole family is, is very happy with the CBDMD products, Ken. Brian, it sounds like your household is not all that different from mine. Uh, and I do appreciate <laughs> you mentioning the product of the year awards. That was, that was a tremendous thing for us. Um, the, the, to, to, in the very first year that CBD products were eligible for voting, you know, two of our products took home honors and it's a survey of 40,000 consumers by Kantar. So it's, you know, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. And, um, and I think about what's going on just in my household, uh, and not because I work for CBDMD, but I've got, I've got, you know, aches and pains and, you know, freeze for me is something that I, that I reach for. Whether, you know, whether it's after I work out at Lifetime or after I work out on, on my own Peloton, freeze, freeze is something that I reach for. PM is something I reach for, but I also have an athlete in my house. Uh, he plays college sports. And so, you know, as needed, you know, the, the products are there for, for him and, and, and in particular, he's used to recover. And, and so, yeah, your household sounds like my household. That's funny. Well, and you know, the story you tell about, uh, Bubba and his manager, like I was the same guy. I, I had product from other CBD companies shipped to me regularly and I didn't trust it. I would just kind of put it to the side and, and frankly, I never tried it. But the fact that, that CBD MD is THC free, uh, that made a big difference for me. So I was at least willing to try it. And like I said, once I did it, it's been a life changer for me. We're seeing a lot of, the leagues out there, the pro sports leagues in the United States, CBD is becoming a more acceptable form of rest and recovery. And, you know, even things like getting a better night's sleep, uh, mental health has become a big topic in sports 
where, you know, anxiety and things like that are, are big with athletes. That's being recognized more. I wonder, I just see this category getting bigger and bigger for you. I certainly hope so. I mean, when, when we started, you know, sketching out where we wanted to bring the brand, uh, early on, um, you know, late 18, early 19, uh, we, we wanted to be an innovator. Um, a lot of the research pointed towards a certain pathway, uh, and certain demographics. We went against the curve a little bit, went a little bit younger, and we, we really thought as a halo for the brand, we thought sports and fitness, uh, was a direction that made a ton of sense. However, no one was doing it. So, um, you know, we kind of took a leap of faith that, you know, some of the data we were looking at, ourselves and just our own, you know, kind of instinct told us that's a path that makes some sense. Now, you know, reverse the clock a little bit, uh, early 2019, there weren't a ton of opportunities. There's a lot of, you know, misinformation about CBD, misunderstanding. What is it? What isn't it? But we wanted to use sports to help tell our story, educate people. Education even today is incredibly important. And so whether it was professional golf, whether it was um, MMA, whether it was surfing, was it, whether it was skateboarding. Uh, we looked for pockets of opportunity that we could use to tell our story, and we, we hope that those, those opportunities continue to open up. Well, and in addition to Bubba Watson, you've got Steve Smith, who played in the NFL for a long time. He's a future Hall of Famer. You've done work with uh, some MMA fighters, Lolo Jones, who's an Olympian, um, when they're using the product, that gives further testimonial to me and it should to others that, hey, these are elite athletes. They don't take just anything for their bodies. If they're taking CBDMD, it says a lot. It sure does. And, and that's certainly what we hear from them. And they echo a lot of the things that you mentioned early on. The, the THC-free factor is critical. And then you put that aside, it's got to work. Right. And, you know, we, we hear back from our athletes that this stuff works for them. They trust it. And we hope that, you know, when when our current and potential consumers hear that from them, you know, at least at least those consumers to give it a shot. I'm interested. You talked a little bit uh, about some of your marketing strategies a few minutes ago. I know, obviously, you you work with my podcast, Sports Business Radio. I know you've worked with Barstool, Joe Rogan. Uh, I know, you know, you want to be on TV. You've got some interesting partnerships. When you're kind of looking at that landscape and where you want to be, what are some of the determining factors for you? Well, ultimately, you know, with our business even now being, you know, 70% e-commerce, uh, 30% you know, brick and mortar, we call it wholesale, but 30% brick and mortar, um, we're looking for conversion. And so, while 2019 really was kind of a, a, a foundational year for the brand in terms of getting on the map and building awareness uh, and, and, frankly, building the brand, 2020 is really about conversion. We're looking for things that are going to move the needle, drive people to our website. Um, there's so many different products to try. Um, you know, I, we look at the metrics from 2019. We must have done something right because we were number one in share of voice, number one in media exposure, number one in unaided awareness. We, you know, we got a bunch of awards, which really kind of set the table for this year. 
And so, yeah, we've, we've continued with Barstool, tremendous partnership for us. Uh, Joe Rogan, same thing. Bubba, same thing. So we've got this foundation of assets around which we're, we're activating, but, but certainly we're hoping that additional, um, you know, additional opportunities open up for us. You, you mentioned television. That's something we're pointing towards. So, uh, we, we want to continue being innovators in our space. Well, you know, if you need a, a face for radio for your TV campaign, you can call me anytime, right? It's funny. I use, I use the same line. So if the people in my building were to have heard you say that, they'd start laughing because I say that all the time about myself. Oh my gosh. No, I think Bubba is a much better candidate uh, for your, your TV ads than, than I would ever be. So you also have a partnership with a company called Lifetime. Uh, explain that to us because, you know, that's important too. Getting your brand out there, letting people experience it firsthand. I think this is an interesting partnership you have with Lifetime. It's, it's, it's another interesting story. So very early on in my time here, um, I just started pencil sketching out, you know, what are some potential angles? opportunities that could make some sense for, for the brand and not necessarily, you know, similar things to, to those that we were already doing, but just take us in a little bit different direction, a little bit different demo. And so I got in touch with an old friend of mine, uh, Chris, who I knew from my NASCAR days, who was overseeing partnerships for lifetime. And I said, Hey, can we grab lunch? And, um, he thought we were just grabbing lunch. We sat down and I said, Hey, I want to talk to you about CBD and CBD MD. And he literally said to me, and I told this story on the day that we announced our partnership up in New York. We had, uh, we had Lolo there. We had Flex Lewis there. And, um, his, literally his comment. Now, mind you, this is somebody who has, you know, been in sports. We've both been in sports for two decades. He says, All right, Ken, I got a question. I go, What's that? He goes, What in the world is CBD? And so literally we were starting from scratch hmm. and, and it was not a short process. It took, it took time, you know, obviously for a lifetime to become comfortable with CBD as a category and then to be comfortable with us as a brand. Um, but when I looked at their, at their demographics, their, their geographic footprint, 140 locations, coast to coast, an absolute premium resort opportunity, um, their demographics, um, a real holistic focus on health and wellness, which is incredibly important to us as we market ourselves. It just seemed like the perfect fit. And it, you know, it took some time, but then we, we announced the partnership in, I want to say it was October 1st of 2019. You'll see, uh, you know, as they continue to open up following COVID, you'll see our advertising continue. And, and pretty soon you'll start seeing our products in their clubs as well. That's great. Are there any other places or categories that you're kind of looking at going, huh, that might be an interesting partnership? Well, I alluded to it earlier after you mentioned it, you know, television, we think is incredibly important as we look for scale and we look for uh, mass eyeballs. Now, what we've got to do is overlay that with uh, some of the, you know, some of the bigger sports properties also being open. So that in addition to, you know, running uh, creative on a particular network at a particular time, you know, what's intriguing to me is can we start running that creative once it's done? Can we start running it in, you know, call it the big three, the big four in terms of, you know, in broadcast sports programming? That's that's interesting to me. And hopefully we can get there. All right. Before I let you go, I'm on your website, CBDMD.com. 
let's dumb this down for my audience. If you're someone who has been on the fence about trying CBD, you just haven't brought yourself to do it yet, and you go to CBDMD.com, what are some products? I know everyone has different needs, so it's not one size fits all, but what are some things as I'm looking through the site that if someone's going to try your product for the first time, do you have any recommendations? I do. I do. Now, we as a company, we don't make claims. You know, we're prohibited from doing so. Um, we, we don't make claims, but we certainly can make some suggestions. And so what I would say is this. First of all, understand, as I mentioned earlier, that CBD does take a few weeks to work in your system. So whether you want to try the tincture form, the gummy form, our soft gels, it's going to take, you know, three or four weeks kind of once you find your dose and format that you prefer for it to work for you. Now, I will tell you that gummies are absolutely our number one product. So if you want to, if you want a kind of an entry into ingestibles, try our gummies. Number two, if you've got, you know, daily aches and pains, you mentioned it, I mentioned it, give the freeze a try. I don't care whether you're a runner, you're a cyclist, uh, you're a weekend warrior, you work out every day, uh, reach for the freeze. It's certainly something that our team CBDMD athletes have with them at all times, including Bubba. I'd give that a shot. And then, you know, while you're on the site, if you've got a pet, I have one, you've got one, um, you know, give those give those soft chews a, a try. I, I have a, I have a feeling they're going to love you. With the gummies, is there a good time of day or night to try them? Like, if someone's listening to this, oh, I don't know if I want to try it during the day. Should you? Should you? Does it help you during the day, or is it better to try those at night? You know, I would just suggest having it at the same time every day. Okay. Uh, morning morning time is fine. Evening time is it's whatever works for you. They're THC free. So, you know, there's no there's no high associated with CBD MD products, so it really won't matter. All right, and I'm going to tell our audience when you go to cbdmd.com, use the promo code SBR like Sports Business Radio. That's your key to saving some money at checkout and there's also uh free 2 to 3 day shipping on all orders in the US, 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Again, Ken, I just love your product and, and people who listen to this show know I don't use products, especially ones that I put into my own body that I take. You know, this is different than wearing clothes or, you know, doing other partnership deals. This is something I'm, I'm literally putting into my body. So I'm very careful about that. So, uh, you have a great product and congratulations on all of your success. I really appreciate it, Brad. This has been a lot of fun. Ken Cohn, the, Chief Marketing Officer for CBDMD. You can go to cbdmd.com. Again, use the promo code SBR at checkout to save. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. I'm thrilled to tell you about a new Sports Business Radio partner who's going to help you and whose products have been life-changing for me and my family. CBDMD is now the official CBD partner of Sports Business Radio. Many people use CBD products as a regular part of their health and wellness routines, but only the best use superior products from CBDMD. CBDMD has a wide variety of CBD oil products ranging from classic CBD oil tinctures to topicals, gummies, heck, they even have CBD for your pets. 
From NFL veterans like Nate Burleson and future Hall of Famer Steve Smith Sr. to two-time Masters champion Bubba Watson, CBDMD is tested and trusted by people who know pain. And the best part? All CBDMD products are THC-free. That was important for me. Third-party tested and backed by a 60-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. Look, these are anxious times for many of us right now. We're not sleeping nearly as well. I tried CBDMD's award-winning CBD PM drops, and I now sleep through the night. My daughter loves CBDMD's Revive Moisturizing Lotion and the CBDMD Freeze Pain Roller for her aches and pains from playing sports. And our dog loves the CBDMD Soft Chews. And because the products are all THC-free, CBDMD is safe for our family. Dozens of companies have sent me CBD product to try over the years, but none come close to the superior quality of CBDMD. Sleep better, relieve your aches and pains, give your pets treats that they will love. And to make it even easier to see what CBD can do for you, CBDMD is offering all of our listeners 25% off your order when you use the promo code SBR at checkout. Once again, go to cbdmd.com and use promo code SBR at checkout to save 25% on your purchase of superior CBD oil products from CBDMD. Again, cbdmd.com, use the promo code SBR at checkout and save 25%. Thank me later. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends from Boingo Wireless, CBDMD, and Mizzen in Maine. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions. GriggsProductions.com.